Hello there and welcome to the Every Ounce Podcast. Here we talk all things mental health, wellness, and resilience. I'm your host Lexi and I am determined to bring you a one-stop shop for all things related to mental might. Join us for talks about naps and fruit snacks to the most real and raw conversations of life. This is where you will find community, validation, and most importantly, strength. Before jumping into this episode, I wanted to give a disclaimer and a trigger warning at the beginning, letting listeners know that this episode does discuss PTSD, suicidal ideation, and sexual assault, which could be triggering to some individuals. Listener discretion is advised. Hello there, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am here with Amelia Zachary, who is soon to be author an advocate for normalizing mental illness and removing stigma. She has personal insight with bipolar disorder, the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder, and suicidal ideation. Amelia is here to discuss struggles in relationships with bipolar, life after, after rape, and share that a rewarding life is within reach. Amelia, I'm so honored to have you with me today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited that you are making this a point to have a conversation around normalizing all these um, stigmas and taboos that we don't speak a lot about. Yeah, yeah, and I'm so grateful to have individuals with personal insight because I can I can only speak for you know what I know and and I don't have the the perspective that you have and so I'm grateful for your time and willingness to come and share with us today. If you don't mind just starting off by introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about about your background, your upbringing, and just who you are as a person. I am a writer now and I'm writing a memoir documenting my life um, post-rape and post-trauma processing and a life with bipolar disorder and basically my life that is that has been uh, a wonderful life, magical and chaotic and beautiful through all of that. I was born and raised in Malaysia and that's where I'm from but now I live in Lexington, Kentucky and I have a beautiful family with uh, two children and an amazing supportive husband and that's where I am right now writing oh my, my stories and sharing my stories that's amazing that's amazing that oh my goodness we'll, we'll have to get into your your mental health story so tell us about this journey that you've been on I know it's included a lot of different aspects and pieces like you said including bipolar and this trauma life after rape even like suicidal ideation can you expound on that for us and tell us how you got to this point of writing this memoir? So I was raped when I was, we'll start with the big stuff. <laughs> I was raped when I was 19 years old and I was really young and green and didn't understand much about, I didn't have a perspective of what that was and mm -hmm. I didn't understand it. I didn't understand it as rape when it happened. I thought that it was something that I had done wrong because I did not have the tools or conversations being had um, around me about it were all very toxic and um, made me go into isolation and seclusion, secluding myself from the world and basically destroying all the dreams and ambitions I had at that age, starting out in life. And so I grew out of it. And many years later, about eight years later, I met my uh, boyfriend, now husband, and he realized that my self-destructive behavior was not something that was healthy or normal. And he helped me start getting treatment. And that's how I started getting into treatment for PTSD and bipolar disorder. 
and we'll talk about a bit a bit more about that later with um, respect to like how the book came along. I now have two beautiful children, two girls, six and four. And we, my husband and I started talking about how important these conversations about um, boundaries, about violations, about rape that had happened to me. I felt like it was an important story for me to tell my children. And we started talking about how and when that would come about and where does it begin that I can change that conversation to be one that's helpful and useful and protective of my children. And so we decided that I would write a book and that's how this whole story about a memoir came around. A way for me to tell my children about the trials and tribulations of something so traumatic and um, painful that I have come through and am standing on the, other, on the other side of it, thriving. And I have this beautiful life with them because I survived it. And so this tale of survivalhood was really for my children. And that's where I'm, I'm writing the book for them. I love that. And someday they will feel so grateful when they have a better understanding of everything that you've been through and, and all of this advice that you're here giving to them and not only to them, but also to like uh, other individuals, obviously here today with me and, and soon to, to the rest of the listeners that will be listening to this episode. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity that you have given me when it comes to all of these different pieces of your story. I think that there's so much stigma surrounding particularly PTSD, bipolar disorder, so many myths that people just don't understand. I think um, I'm currently in an abnormal psychology class and we've been, we've been talking about all of the different DSM diagnoses. And so obviously some of these have come up and, and we've talked about these things and, and learning more about them and kind of debunking this stigma. And I think that a lot of people assume that those with bipolar are just crazy. They're insane. They just, you know, you can't handle them to be around. They're just manic all the time, or they're just super depressed all the freaking time. And they're just crazy people. They're just mentally insane or with PTSD. Yes, yes, yes. Or like with PTSD that they are just constantly always have so much anxiety. They're always, um, you know, scared or whatever. And, or that they're constantly having these flashbacks and things like that. And while some of that can be true to an extent with, with both of those. I mean, those ideas aren't just from nowhere, but I think usually the stigma around them is so not clear and so inaccurate that th- these are real people we're talking about, not just a diagnosis. And so it's important to understand the real symptoms and the real treatment and the real experiences that individuals are having with these illnesses that have stemmed from these life experiences. So I appreciate you being vulnerable today with me um, for that. So I wanna ask you, what is bipolar disorder like to someone who's experienced it? Maybe to someone who has no idea what bipolar even is, how would you explain that? I think bipolar is very misconstrued. Like you say, like in on TV and in the movies, you see them as people who are, uh, mass murderers or you know they're unhinged and unstable and unable to um, be productive in life and that's not the truth while there may possibly be cases that are like that I'm sure they are and they're based in some form of truth there's so many different types of bipolar disorder and so many ways it manifests itself and what I have is bipolar 2 mm. which is milder manic episodes which are high, called hypomanic where I am 
I have increased abnormal increased levels of activity, but they're not extreme. And then I have um, depressive episodes where there's decreased level of energy and activity. And that's the part that people see as depression, like deep depression, laying in bed and uh, crying for days on end or not being able to do anything. And many states where people think that I'm like bouncing off the walls and going crazy. <laughs> and that's not the truth because there are days that I am in bed. There are days that I have, I'm unable to do anything, unable to put one foot in front of the other or just get up and brush my teeth. That becomes a big task. But I am also, I, I have bipolar disorder and I'm not living in those episodes 24 seven. Right. At 365 days a week. A year, sorry. I am. I have these episodes, and I go in and out of the episodes. And during these episodes, I'm still productive in life. I have children. I have two children that I have to care for. I have to take them to school. I have to take them to classes. Take them to soccer, dance class, and play dates, and all these things. And I do it while suffering, while having to take medication in order for me to cope with it, or while having to use the tools, therapeutic tools that I've learned through treatment to be able to process every single interaction, every single step of the way in order for me to be productive, to have a functioning life. And that, and that is invisible. That is something that other people don't see. And you don't think that there's anything wrong with me because you don't see it. But a simple task as saying hello can become something that's so mind draining and mentally draining and exhausting. Somebody might just give me a compliment saying like, oh, you look beautiful today. And my mind goes hundred, I might be hypomanic and my mind will be going at hundred miles an hour. Like, oh, they said something because there's something wrong. Oh, and I get all anxious about it. Like, is, it, is there something wrong with the way I look? Did I wear something wrong? Or should I not be wearing this? I mean, did I, was there a dress code? Was, there, was I supposed to wear a certain color? Or why is she saying that, she, that I look nice? Is she trying to make me feel better because I look terrible? And all these irrational thoughts flooding my brain and overcoming me. And then I have to then use my tools that I've learned in therapy to identify the cognitive distortions, identify the thinking errors, and then reframe those thoughts in order for me to be able to get past that one interaction. So then multiply that one interaction by all the interactions you have in the, in the course of a day. That is my experience in hypomanic episodes while performing in, an, in a normal day-to-day -day life um, scenario. And so it's not what you see on TV all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and right. it's not where well, we're not I'm I'm not like bound to like sitting in a corner facing a wall and trying to like recite the whole encyclopedia or something because my mind's gone mad like you know it's not right. that's not what it looks like I just watched the tv show the other day and they said like oh he's that way because he has bipolar and this is thrown around so much that I think that exacerbates and like just perpetuates the stigma and taboo around the illness oh and it sure. really is it really is a mental illness that requires attention, requires help. But with treatment, I am testimony, I think, that I can live a life that's fulfilling, a life that is close to as normal, whatever normal means, quote unquote normal, right? Whatever that means. I do well, basically functioning as a mother and doing all the, all the respons right, responsibilities that I have. I'm able to do them while in these episodes. And then there are times that I, I can't do them. And I'm in those deeper episodes. And that also we've learned how to deal with 
And some days I'm paralyzed because my anxiety doesn't allow me to do anything. I feel like something really bad is about to happen. If I get out of bed, something really bad is going to happen. Or if I do this thing today, it's going to be really terrible. I can't walk in the door at a party because something bad is about to happen. And you know, these irrational thoughts and irrational anxiety that I cannot overcome. And yeah. then that takes, that takes a lot of things, tools and treatments. Then there are times that I have these symptoms. I have the symptoms manifest itself, but I don't have a root cause. I'm feeling anxiety and it's visceral, it's physical. My heart's racing, I'm sweating, my, my head's feeling hot. And that's anxiety, physical anxiety, but I don't have a thought to pin it on in order for me mm. to process it or change it. Mm. So it's easy to say like, oh, I had a breakup, I had a bad breakup and I'm sad because I'm because I'm sad because we broke up. You can pin it on that certain trigger and then say I'm depressed because of that. Therefore, I will work on the thoughts on that and get out of this depression because of that. But sometimes I just feel really immensely sad and grief and pain and just like a 300 ton lead ball is on my chest and I can't I'm not able to move or do anything or breathe or be able to think things through because there is no pin there is no root cause that I can pin it on right and that's those are the things that people don't see if you just get up and go take a shower no this lead ball is on me and I can't move I yeah. don't know how to get it off. So it's hard to describe and explain how it actually manifests itself because it happens in a million different ways. These are just a few examples I can give to hopefully give people insight on how it actually looks or feels like for somebody who's going through it. And I'm sure people who are going through it go through it in many, many different ways, many, many different manifestations and the way um, it takes hold of them. But it is it can be paralyzing and immobilizing at times but then most of the time you see me as a functioning mother right right and I think that bipolar oftentimes people think that it's like with the flip of a switch you're yeah. you know you're manic one one moment and then the next you're like you said laying in bed you can't move you can't get up you know it, everything just becomes this daunting task and most of the time that's not the case usually it's these periods of hours or days or even weeks of time where you're going through these slums of depression and then again equally as manic episodes or whatever that looks like for each individual and so oftentimes when we think of somebody just back and forth up and down with emotions that isn't really bipolar that's just having human emotions Raging emotions <laughs> right that's part like of human that, life so like you were talking about the dsm the, earlier and the dsm defines it as something that's prolonged a prolonged episode of mm. a certain um either manic or depressive episodes that's why they're called episodes they have to last the number of days i'm not very sure about what those number of days are and but that is the definition of bipolar and the other thing is, I'm not swinging from like coming out of manic into depressive, into manic, into depressive, into manic, into depressive all the time. I have baseline days, mm. sometimes last for months. When sometimes last for months, I, I, I have a manic episode and then I come down from that and I just come down to a baseline and I'm, I'm stable for a few months or a few days, few weeks, few months. It, it varies with every... I mean, every circumstance in life. 
and then I may go down into another depression. I may go up into another manic episode. The, the only consistency is the inconsistencies of the cycles. Mm. It repeats itself. It's cyclical. It repeats itself. And I, but I do have those stages of time, those spaces in time where I'm stable and I'm not experiencing an episode. So it's not like somebody's like up and down all the time, like they, they show in the movies, they're laughing one minute and then they're screaming and crying in the next. That's mm. not how it happens. There's no switch. It ramps up, it ramps down. And then you sometimes get a stable episode. Sometimes you fall straight into a next episode. And so it goes. Yeah. yeah. I liked how you mentioned that there is treatment, right? And I know that sometimes with bipolar disorder, it takes a long time to diagnose because you have to have some history behind it. You have to have the history of these episodes. And so unfortunately, individuals are oftentimes struggling, uh, you know, months or years before it's even diagnosed. Um, and that's because clinicians have to have, you know, the history, the medical history, the, you know, experiences and and all of that different information. And when you said that you had tools, these tools that you've that you've been able to, you know, kind of stock your tool belt with and use when you're going through these through these experiences, I want you to kind of touch more on that and what individuals that maybe are listening can do. We know that obviously there are medications available that are helpful, but I mean, obviously, I'm not a psychiatrist, right? So I can't, I can't really speak for that, but, and we know that therapy is available also, but what kind of tools do you have and that you can recommend to individuals? So first of all, I do recommend definitely any form of mental illness. I'm here to talk about normalizing mental illness, right? Whatever that may be. And I can only speak to mine, which is bipolar disorder and PTSD, which I'm experiencing, but I think it's a overall, overall arc where if you are experiencing some kind of mental instability, some form of, you know when there's something not right in your mental state, right? We, we know ourselves well, we all know ourselves well enough to know that there's something not right and something's a little off. Like you would check out a heart palpitation or shortness in breath or a bad cough. If there's a hiccup in your brain then get it checked out by a medical professional. Right. And. I know there's a struggle people have looking for a healthcare professional that um, the key in diagnosis and um, treatment is consistency in any kind of illness. And so I feel like people sometimes give up after the once or twice they go in to see a doctor. And I almost did give up after once or twice of seeing a doctor because you don't agree with the doctor or you don't trust the doctor or you don't like the doctor's face or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. something goes wrong and then you just skip it out altogether and then never get diagnosed and you hope that things get better and the tricky thing with bipolar is it comes and goes so if it goes and you think it's gone you never get it diagnosed because you don't go back to the doctor mm. so consistency is key in trying to find a, an answer when i first started i was diagnosed with ptsd because there was information that I had raped, I've been raped, and I was um, I, I was expressing my symptoms in terms that was matched that matched PTSD symptoms. Right. And so I was diagnosed with PTSD. So the key was for me to keep consistently seeing the doctor in order to get treatment. And in that consistency, they found patterns in my behavior. Mm. They found patterns in my symptoms, and then they realized that this was something more. And over months, more again, consistency again, 
for more months, they found that I was bipolar. I, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder over uh, over several different tests and um, sessions. And so I think consistency is key. And there is one um, analogy, a story that my therapist told me when I was looking for a new therapist. When I, I moved a lot, so when I moved to America, I had seen like two therapists, and I didn't like them. I didn't like one told me I shouldn't have babies. Another one told me that I was, I had six other different diagnoses within 15 minutes of seeing me. And so I was like, no, this is oh not boy. right. I don't want to see these people. So I, I, I felt like I was falling into like this, this whirlpool of, of quacks in the field. Mm -hmm. And so my doctor said to me, if you're driving a car and your car broke down and you hear this sound, coming from the timing belt and you go to the first mechanic and then you try to get it fixed and they say they fix it and then you start driving and it makes a sound do you keep driving no you find another mechanic and see if that guy can fix it and if he doesn't fix it then you go to the next one until it gets fixed because you're not going to drive a car that's about to break down in any minute right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the same thing with the therapist being consistent in advocating for yourself and looking for the right care that suits you is so important because that will keep that's the key to keeping consistency in treatment in order for you to get diagnosed with the correct accurate thing it takes time mental illness is invisible so they're gauging out of they're, they're gauging any kind of um, symptoms that represent any kind of illness through your reports and those reports have to be consistent over time in order for them to be able to um, come up with something and yeah. so i i and then I have been given through talk, I've been doing talk therapy and drug therapy. So there's so many ways, there's so many different kinds of therapy and seeing a, a medical professional will help you find the one that fits you. Right. And for me, that's been drug therapy and talk therapy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So through talk therapy, I learned, I, drug therapy does handles the biological factors that, have, um, that affect bipolar disorder, their chemical imbalances that I cannot control, but my medi medication helps me um, level the highs and the lows so that they're closer to normal. And then I have talk therapy where I'm given tools to work on my, to work on the way I think about things, the way I respond to things, the way I react to things and how I can, I use CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, where I identify cognitive distortions or thinking errors and my automatic thoughts and reframe them to make them to be something that is more productive or healthy line of thinking. I also do acceptance um, in theory, uh, therapy, which is where it's just more mindfulness and allowing myself to be with my feelings that feelings are feelings, however, mm -hmm. feelings are not facts. And therefore we can, we can reframe those feelings into something that is more productive. Yeah. And so those are the tools that I use regularly because those I've been practiced in over treat, uh, through treatment over so many years. Now I'm practicing those and it comes in second nature to me when I say something I know, uh, thinking error. Mm. I know I said something wrong. Like that's, no, that's not, that's not what I'm trying to say or that's not, that's not how I should have received that. And so that helps with me being able, it, it's less exhausting now right. than it used to be. It used to be like 300 steps before I could get to the like, okay, I'm okay with that statement now. Now I can go and say hi to someone else and repeat that whole thing again. <laughs> but now it's, 
So now it's more natural to me. It comes quickly and yeah. because of practice, it comes quickly and it's it makes life so much more easier and tolerable. Yeah. Because I don't feel like the world's against me anymore. Yeah, I can only imagine the emotional exhaustion that this ups and downs, back and forth, this ebb and flow would be, right? And so I love that you talked about how you have kind of found that resilience in overcoming that. And when you talked about this past trauma or this PTSD that you've experienced, how do individuals find that resilience when overcoming trauma that they have experienced? And what are some of the big stigmas when it comes to this recovery? For me, I think it was coming into an acceptance of it being a violation was the largest portion of healing. I, I've only come to that very recently in the past year. I was raped when I was 19 and that was about 18 years ago, 19 years ago now. And only recently in the past year had I, I had this aha moment when I was trying to reframe it for what I would do, what would I say to my children if something were to happen with our children? That's a beautiful thing when you have children. I feel we reparent ourselves mm. because you want to model yourself to be what you want your children to be. If I'm going to tell them to be strong, I'm going to tell them to be resilient, I'm going to tell them to believe something, then I have to model that belief. And I realized if I were to tell my children, if something like this were to happen to them, God forbid, of course, I don't ever wish this upon anyone. Right. But should they have come to me, I said, what would I have, what would I say to them? And my answer was that, like, I love you. And there's nothing that you could have done different that could have not caused that to happen because there was a violation against yourself that you had no control over. And as I said those words to my husband, it clicked to me like that, that was what happened to me. There's yeah. in no way my fault. There's no way that I could have caused that to happen or asked for that to happen to me, but it did happen to me. And so accepting that it was something that had happened and no longer focusing on the why it happened because there isn't an answer to the why. I will never get an answer to the why. Mm. It was just a vile act and it had happened. And I something clicked in me that I believed it, finally believed it as a violation and I accepted it. And then I feel like from healing, I'm now in a place of growth where I want to make things better. I'm growing from it and I'm comfortable talking about it. I want to share. I want to share with the world. I want to share with other women or other people that <clears throat> it doesn't only happen to women. I understand that right. to other people, anybody, to him, her, them, that it happens to that this was a violation and and that we can get through it and that is there is a way through it which is really just living each day well i believe there are no wrong cards now that we are dealt the cards that you are dealt and you don't get a say now what do we do with those cards what matters yeah and so i believe i'm spiritual and i believe in a higher purpose but I don't know what my higher purpose is. I don't know if I ever will, but I believe that I have a purpose and I'm at peace with living each day as it comes and no longer worrying about what was, what had happened or what could have happened because I always thought that because that happened, it ruined my future. 
Mm. The whole, I was 19 years old. I was young. I was smart. I was incredibly fierce and driven. And I was, I had this whole picture of my future ahead of me. And it was all taken away and ruined by this one person. And I let that happen because I, because of the stigma around this. This is the rape culture we live in, where, where the society aids and abets the perpetuation of sexual violence. Victim blaming, I was blamed for what happened. What were you wearing? Where were you? How much mm. were you drinking? Who were you with? Those were the, I know as silly as it sounds now, when we look at this, we listen to people saying these questions, it sounds stupid, but they are, they were the questions that I was posed with. Yeah. And I, I went into a shell in my corner and I secluded myself, isolated myself from the world because I thought that I had done something wrong to deserve this. Right. Had I done something differently. I was so smart. If you were so smart, you should have avoided this situation. Mm. Smart girls don't get into situations like this. Good girls don't get into situations like this. And that was the thought in my mind that created that aftermath for myself where I was left to heal by myself. I didn't reach out to anyone. I didn't get help and I didn't know how to. And I just I took it upon myself to really internalize all the pain and the trauma, which is, which is what brought about a lot of suicidal ideation. I felt like there was nothing left, yeah. nothing left to live for because everything was taken away from me and everyone had turned on me. And so... I guess what I'm getting at is if I, I want to tell this story because I want people to know that there is a different end. That end that was planned will never be the same. Not, not for me at least. Mm. The end that I had planned for myself will, will never come into fruition. But this beautiful end that I'm in now, I could have never have pictured. Right. But I am still, I am in it because I held on. For some reason I held on, I was incompetent or something was wrong with the way I was trying to kill myself and it didn't work or I wasn't meant, I wasn't meant to, it just wasn't my time yet. And so I have time left now and I'm making the best of it. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I am, I'm just sitting here just soaking all of this in, just so grateful for this, this story that you're sharing with me and how much I'm able to learn from you. When it comes to rape itself, what should individuals do that have experienced similar things? What would be your advice to them? Maybe someone who's just gone through this, what would you say to them? And as a society in general, what should all individuals do to better support those going through this process and prevent this from occurring? I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I can give advice, hmm. but I would say again, like the hope that is with my book or the hope that I'm doing all these podcasts, I'm hoping that people have hope. Yeah that the life that you want is still there and this as painful as it is it will pass mm. as yeah. you give if you give space for the rest of your life to take take place yeah i mean at least that's that's what happened to me for me i i'm not keen on giving advice or telling people what to do but i right. can sh share my experience and how i felt and I feel now retrospectively looking back, I wish I didn't give so much space to the pain, mm. but it's hard in that moment. It was in those moments when I was deep in it, it was hard to not give space to it because that's all that was 
that was taken from me. Right. And I blame that on our culture, mm. on rape culture. And it all begins at home. It all begins with children, how we raise our children, how we talk to our children, how we talk about rape. If you dress like this, you are bound to be raped. If you are out in the in the club getting drunk, pissed drunk, then you are, there's a recipe for disaster. What does mm. that all mean? Yeah. How that that all really pulls down the conversation back to victim blaming. That somehow it is the victim's fault for creating an ideal scenario for a rapist to take advantage. That conversation amongst us has to change. Right. The conversations we have to with our children. I my children, I, I speak from experience from my children who are six and four. They're little now, but I can still teach them conversations that redefined rape culture, that redefined this conversation that we have around rape culture. We talk about boundaries. We, we talk about no. There's no such thing as somebody pulling your hair is because little Billy likes you. No, that's that's a conversation that you need to you need to address. My children know that you need to address when your body is touched without your consent. It is your responsibility to stand up and express that discontent express that violation yeah and so like things like that we teach our children from from we teach our children boys will be boys girls should do this keep your legs crossed wear your undershorts and put on like all these things i feel that's ingrained so deeply ingrained in our culture that we don't even know why we do them anymore mm. we don't even know why we say these things anymore but they have large implications as our children grow up and become those individuals those grown-ups Oh, for sure. Who don't understand consent, who don't understand boundaries, who feel empowered by the lack of boundaries or empowered by uh, a, a weak situation. So I feel like our conversations really have to change. Our conversations with our children have to change. And we have to redefine this culture that aids and abets sexual violence. Yeah. I just, I, I feel like you would be a good person to talk about this with because I want to I want to talk more about this consent right and especially with being in college there's a lot of I would say well not, maybe not a lot but there's starting to be more awareness around this and like just yesterday I got a flyer on my fridge on my on my door and it's supposed to be a fridge fr a fridge flyer and it has a bunch of just information of what's going on you know events that are upcoming and whatever and one of the portions of this flyer was a, a portion about consent and it had a bunch of different statements such as, well, they didn't say no. Well, they didn't tell me to stop. And it, all of these things were crossed out with red, with red marker and um, just different examples of things that people, I mean, could say or things that they were like, well, we've done it before, you know, we've done, you know, or whatever. And so all these things were crossed out and I think it's so important that this, this idea of boundaries, that you have the ability to at any point refuse to participate in any sort of activity. And, and so I kind of want you to touch on that if you're willing. What is the only acceptable version of consent? What does that look like? Any form, body language or express words or physical creating a physical boundary or using your using your hands and your body. I'm, I'm speaking to you as I speak to my children. Right. 
if someone has a look on their face that shows that they're not happy with what you're saying or doing, and you back off, someone puts their hand out, you back off. They don't have to say no, but if they say no, then you better be backing off. Yeah. And this I'm telling my four-year-old. Mm. And I think it works the same way with anyone. If you, I mean, you, we are supposed to have evolved, grown into like adults who understand social, social scripts. We understand um, boundaries. We're supposed to understand nonverbal communication, right? So if someone's face doesn't look right, then you know you need to back off. Mm. That doesn't. That doesn't. You don't like we tell our children. There's no need for you to wait for somebody to be kicking and screaming for you to understand that no was communicated in some way right yeah if somebody is expressing some form of discomfort in any way facial expression body language hands legs screaming speaking crying any form of show of discomfort should be enough for someone to understand that that's a no right i absolutely disagree that if somebody doesn't expressly say no stop they, that somebody, some grown person and another adult right. is unable to understand body language and nonverbal yeah. cues. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I appreciate your time being here with me today. I, I wish you wouldn't have had to go through the things that you've gone through, but I do appreciate the, the background and the story that you can tell and the inspiration that you can give You have said that, this is a quote, I have recently embarked on documenting all this chaos, pain, struggles, and hope for joy and full depth of experience in life as it is. I want to be part of the conversation that pushes normalizing mental illness and removing stigmas around rape victims. I would like to be part of conversations that also move to eradicate victim blaming and promote victim healing. I'd like to give hope to those who have experienced the pains and taboos that I have, that a rewarding life is yet within reach for us. And that's end quote. What is the number one takeaway for those that may be struggling right now with whatever it may be, PTSD, bipolar, uncovering and healing from trauma, life after rape, any other mental illness, what's the what's that nugget of knowledge that you would give them? What's that one thing you would say to them to instill some hope in their minds? Hold on. Hold on, because I know it's hard. I know it's rough. Like I feel it as I'm saying it right now. And I, I still go through this. I'm thriving. I'm living a life that's fulfilling. I have a beautiful family, beautiful children and everything, but I still go through days where I find, I try to think away my thoughts of trying to find an end. That still comes, that still sweeps through my mind, but hold on because I know this is cheesy. The best is yet to come, but every single day is better than the last and just hold on. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Amelia, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful. I appreciate you holding space for me. Thank you so much. And with that, thank you all so much for tuning in today. I hope that Amelia and I have brought some education and hope to you in regards to bipolarity, trauma, and overall mental well-being. If you know someone that would benefit from this episode, please send them this podcast. Be sure to check out at Brown Girl Crazy World on Instagram. Visit AmeliaZachary.com for book updates. And of course, make sure to follow at Every Ounce Dot of Strength. 
Until next time, may you fight with every ounce. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please remember that this podcast, my Instagram account, or any other content on my website should not be used as a replacement for therapy or professional treatment. Eating disorders and mental health conditions are serious psychological and physiological illnesses that should be treated appropriately by licensed professionals. This space is simply for the purpose of community support, offering suggestions, giving hope, and encouraging recovery. Until next time, may you fight with every ounce of strength.